0: in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit So that you may also know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody.
1: Today represents a, a cool day for Disciples Church in the sense that we are finishing up the very first book that we have done as a church. So we have gone through the book of Ephesians and today we're finishing it. So we are grateful for the provision and the grace of God. It's a pretty cool thing uh, that we have gotten to gather and really go through this book that is really so pivotal in understanding who we are as the church and then what it means that we ought to live. We have been in the book of Ephesians for about four months now, Um, and as we have mentioned, I think almost each week, we've kind of talked about the book of Ephesians this way. It's really broken up into two big pieces. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about who we are in Christ, that before the foundation of the world, God determined to make a single new human race through the death and the resurrection of his Son. That's the mystery of the gospel that Paul is talking about. That Jews would come to faith the same way that Gentiles do. That Gentiles would be invited into faith in the family of God at all. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That we are one in him. And chapters 4 through 6 is all about the way our lives should look in light of our new identity in Christ. You see, Christ first loved and served each of us. And through his indwelling presence, through his Holy Spirit, being new creations in Christ, you and I too are able to love and serve one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spouses, our children, our parents, those under our authority and those who have authority over us. But in today's passage, Paul concludes his letter this way, finally. In light of everything I've just shared with you, Paul says, I have one final set of instructions. So you know that the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding regions, just like you and I, need to pay attention. So I was in second grade in 1979. Uh, My family had just moved from Milwaukee to Neshota, and I was beginning the second half of my second grade year in a new school, we had kind of moved in the winter. And with my Star Wars lunchbox in hand, I headed off to school and I met my new teacher and I met the students that I, that were, that I was going to call classmates. And each kid in the class also in turn needed to get up and introduce themselves to me. And one kid got up, and he introduced himself as Luke. Now, if you are not familiar, one of the main characters in Star Wars is Luke Skywalker. So upon hearing Luke introduce himself, being a monster Star Wars fan like I was, I was like, Luke? Wow, like Luke Skywalker? Now, most kids, did what you guys did, kind of chuckled at my observation. I was probably that excited about it because there weren't a lot of Lukes around at the time. And while everybody else found it funny, Luke did not. Though I meant it as a compliment. But he didn't know me that well. Didn't know me at all. So later that morning at recess, I remember playing with some of my new friends and before I knew it, I was laying face down on the ground with somebody on top of me. And through the muffle of my hooded jacket, snow in my ears, I heard, don't ever call me Luke Skywalker again. Now, I learned that day that Luke is a wrestler, (laughs) and he had me in a hold that I could not get out of. And through brute force, he wanted to make sure that I knew that he did not care for my quip about Luke Skywalker, to which I replied, you know, my last name is Han. You could call me Han Solo if you want to. He didn't. <laughs> but in time, it actually became my nickname in, in throughout grade school and high school, the people who knew me from that point. Solo became kind of my nickname, so it ended up working out okay. See, in time, Luke and I became great friends and we would joke about uh, the, fa- the way that we met, that I said what, he, what I said and he did what he did but I share that story with you today because the passages that we're looking at in Ephesians 6 use battle-infused language. And as a second grader, I was part of a battle. <laughs> Paul gives us four important things in Ephesians 6 that we must know if we're going to engage well in battle, whether it be on the playground at Neshota grade school or elsewhere. So here are the four things that Paul wants us to know. One. You have to know that you're in a fight. Two, you have to know who you're fighting. Three, you have to know how to defend yourself. And four, you need a key to victory. So apart from my fight with Luke that day, I hadn't been and have not been in many other scuffles. But even so, it was always easy for me and it's easy for us to identify those who recognize they're in battle and those who do not. Because you don't see firefighters walking into burning buildings without helmets, without coats buttoned up and without a hose under their hand and an ax. Or police officers heading out onto their shift without a bulletproof vest or weapons on their hips or men and women of our armed forces heading into battle wearing flip-flops and board shorts and tank tops. If we did see any of those things, we would think and hopefully say the exact same thing. Are you crazy? See, we all know that if danger is standing on our doorstep, we'd better be ready. With nothing left behind and nothing left to chance. In the same way, Paul exhorts his readers and us in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because whether you and I like it or not, whether we are aware of it or not, we are in a fight. So we should suit up and we should be ready every single day. Well, the question is, well, what fight? What fight are we in and with whom? Paul continues, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in the middle of a spiritual war. And we have spiritual enemies. And according to verse 11, our primary enemy is Satan. The devil, the tempter, the evil one, the father of lies, the ruler of the world, and the kingdom of the air. But we also war against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. All are unseen, but very real. All are powerful and wicked and cunning, and they are actively working against God's purposes and we his people. John Stott spoke of Satan this way, Satan is a dangerous wolf but enters Christ's flock in the disguise of a sheep. Sometimes he roars as a lion, but more often is as subtle as a serpent. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. See, our Western culture, America and Europe, often scoff at the idea of devils and demons. In most other places in the world, evil is understood and it's assumed. It helps actually make sense of why life is the way that it is. We in the West are like, really? Devils and demons? You don't believe all that silly nonsense, do you? See, God we can believe in, but Satan? I wonder why. If we can believe in a supernatural good, why is it so hard to believe in a supernatural evil which then wars against the good? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, points out two major mistakes that people make regarding our spiritual enemy. He writes There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and will hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So whether you don't believe or whether you have an unhealthy obsession with them, the devils are just as pleased. Now there's actually a third error that I think many of us believe. And it is that God and Satan are equally powerful. Listen, friends. Be encouraged. They are not. The Bible tells us that Satan is a fallen angel. A creation of God, not equal to God. If you read the book of Job... You learn that Satan has to ask God for permission to do almost anything. In the Gospels, demons routinely bow down in fear of Jesus. They know who he is, they know he is all powerful, and they obey him. They don't worship, but they obey. And though Satan is not God's equal, he is not to be ignored. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have told us to put on armor. In verse 12, Paul also lets us know who our enemies are not. They are not primarily flesh and blood, one another. It's not to say that other people can't and don't afflict us and hurt us. They certainly do. What Paul is trying to say is there's much more underneath what we're seeing when others cause us harm. John Calvin said it this way, our difficulties are far greater than if we had to fight with men. There, we resist human strength. But here, the case is widely different. Our enemies are such as no human power can withstand. This is no bodily struggle. Remember this when those who injure you provoke you to revenge. The men who annoy us are nothing more than darts, thrown by the hand of Satan. And while we are employed destroying those darts, we lay ourselves open to be wounded on all sides. To wrestle with flesh and blood will not only be useless, but highly dangerous. We must go straight to the enemy who attacks and wounds us from his concealment, who slays before he appears. I mean, let's be honest here. Even as we hear those words and we read the encouragement of Paul's words, we still choose to see people as our primary enemies, don't we? Isn't it unto others that we direct most of our anger and our blame? Even brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we don't see the words and the deeds of others as schemes of the devil as Paul talks about. I think we see the people who bother and hurt us as the devil. See, in this day and age, to our shame, we demonize who dare disagree with us. We hardly know how to handle conflict in a respectful and civil way. And we engage and we respond in unkind, unloving, and ungodly dialogue and behaviors. Sometimes in secret, sometimes directly, sometimes behind the veil of social media. And we abandon the unity that Christ has called us to. Usually over non-primary issues that just rub against our egos. And the Bible warns us that we don't understand who our true enemy is when we think and we react that way. The fact of the matter is, those who hurt us are being used. Each of us can be and have been used. We have all been arrows in the devil's quill to provoke, to accuse, and to tempt others. So what then do we do? Understand that we're in a fight. And realize who your true enemy is. Then Paul tells us in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Believers, we have not been left wanting. We have not been left unprotected. God has given us everything that we need for this battle and for this life. We simply need to put on And use that which he has given. All of it. The whole armor of God. See, the armor that we wear is from God. And according to Isaiah 59, God himself has worn it. Isaiah 59 reads, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. And he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So we're told to put on the armor of God. And then later on in verse 11, Paul tells us why we are to put on the whole armor of God. Do you see it when you read it? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand. That same word is used four times in just a few verses. So why continue to use that word? I think there are two reasons. First, because God wants us to live strong and stable lives in Christ. That we would not shake like reeds in the wind when the attacks come. And second, because God wants us to understand that as the church of Christ, we are not on the offensive we shouldn't be actively looking for demons to conquer or satanic forces to destroy. Instead, we are to be about the business of our Father in heaven. We are to imitate Christ who did nothing and who said nothing unless the Father told him to say or do it. We are to let love, Christ's love flow through us, to let him lead through us, to allow him to live through us. And share the good news of the gospel with those who don't know and with those who have forgotten. And we are to fulfill the great commission making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. And as we encounter spiritual opposition, and we will, we stand. So in verses 14 through 17, Paul gives us a detailed list of what the armor of God actually looks like, symbolically speaking. There are six pieces of armor in particular. There's a belt, there's a breastplate, there are shoes, there's a shield, there's a helmet, and there's a sword. Now one can imagine, or at least I can imagine, Paul sitting in a Roman prison, looking at the adornment of the centurion standing around him and going, yeah, that'll preach. So let's look at each piece of equipment one by one. I think the order of this list is intentional. It is very likely the order in which the soldiers would have put on their armor. So first we have the belt of truth. Before all other pieces of armor get put on, it was the belt that was fastened. It held everything that was underneath the armor together, making a soldier feel secure and free to be able to move about in battle. And in the same way, The truth of God holds everything together in our lives. Giving us confidence to move in to this spiritual battle. Two, we have the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was essential in battle in that it protected the vital organs, right? It went over the front and covered the whole chest, the heart, the lungs, stomach, liver. And the breastplate of righteousness is just as critical for the believer As Paul mentioned earlier in Ephesians, we don't have a righteousness of our own. We don't have an armor of our own. It is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, reminding us of our standing in him and our calling as his children. So not just righteous standing, but righteous living. And this breastplate of righteousness protects us when our sin and our fear and our experiences and our feelings cause us to fear. When our confidence might otherwise be shaken, we have a breastplate of righteousness to protect that which is vital. Third, we have the shoes of readiness given by the gospel. Shoes, though I think if we were to see them, would likely call them sandals. They had a lot of straps and it was an open toe deal. They protected the feet of the soldier. The ground of the battlefield was not paved. It was rocky, and it was shaky, and you never knew what you were going to encounter. And a soldier's shoes protected and stabilized. See, the soles of their shoes were affixed with long, sharp nails. They called them studded shoes, probably several inches long so they could really grip the ground underneath them so that they could really dig in, so that they could truly stand. A soldier's shoes also helped them march long distances at great speed. See, a successful army was one whose feet were well equipped and in this battle, these shoes of readiness in the gospel equip us to find our footing in the gospel to which we have been saved so that no scheme of the devil would knock us down and to be ready to march forward with the same gospel, the gospel of peace, as Paul calls it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the prophet Isaiah gave us a reflection of this very idea in chapter 52. He wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Fourth, we have the shield of faith. Now, a shield is designed, obviously, to protect. And it can be moved wherever one is being attacked. Now, don't think Captain America shield when you hear that word. Not some small round little thing that you'd move in front of you made of vibranium or whatever it's made of. Think Braveheart or Gladiator. Medieval and ancient. Standing four feet tall, two feet wide. You're able to get your whole body behind it. That's the kind of shield Paul's referring to here. And in ancient art battles, armies would light several arrows on fire and launch them all at once from every side causing panic, as it would, and oftentimes setting those very shields on fire. And so it is with Satan and his demons. Darts of doubt and fear and temptation and lies are being fired at us, oftentimes all at once. And we need to stand firm behind the shield of our faith in Christ not only to protect us from our enemy's attack, but to extinguish and to turn back that which has been fired at us. Fifth, we have the helmet of salvation. Now helmets, in Paul's day, were likely made of leather and were fortified with metal to kind of help protect the head. And in the same way, the helmet of salvation protects us, our minds, from anything that would discourage or deceive or disorient us about who we are in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And as God renews our minds and gives us the very mind of Christ, the helmet of salvation protects. The helmet of salvation also fixes our eyes on Christ, the author of our salvation. Oftentimes helmets were kind of cut off here and then they had a middle piece going down the nose, so those eyes were right here. So when our enemy seeks to distract us and draw our attention elsewhere, our eyes are a gaze at the author of our faith. And sixthly and finally, we have the sword of the spirit. Now the sword is as close as we're going to get to being on the offensive in Paul's description of the armor of God. Swords are unique that way in that they're able to be used both offensively and defensively. And one must recognize from a defensive standpoint where an attack is coming from and know how to block, right? How to raise and position that sword so that that attack doesn't hit. And offensively, one must also be able to recognize where the openings are and when to thrust forward. And for we who believe, our sword is the word of God. It's no surprise that Jesus was a master swordsman against Satan's schemes. In the wilderness, as Jesus was being tempted, he would deflect Satan's attacks and then counter with the word of God. Listen to Matthew 4, verse 3. Matthew writes, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that exchange went back and forth a few times, deflect, thrust forward with the word of God. Now, no right-minded centurion would have left for battle without a sword. In the same way, no Christian should enter into our spiritual battle, our life here on earth, Without the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So do we carry the sword of the Spirit? Do we carry His Word in our hands and in our hearts and do we know and love it? And do we use it wisely to defend and to retaliate when we're attacked? Now verses 18 or 11 through 18 seem daunting at best, and possible at worst, without the verses that bookend them, specifically verses 18 through 20 and verse 10. But it is in these verses where we find the keys to victory. So let's look first at verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So two big ideas here. Pray and keep alert. Praying in the Spirit means that we pray with God's help and we pray for God's help. And it is the Spirit who does that. See, we're not self-dependent, but God-dependent. We aren't after our will when we pray in the Spirit, but after His And staying alert is a byproduct of praying in the spirit. It is through prayer that we are alert and mindful of who God is, what he is doing, and what he is calling us to. And it keeps us from the enemy's lies and temptations. Jesus' words to his disciples on the night of his betrayal echo this very idea. Matthew 26, verse 41 reads, Jesus said, Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus' words in Matthew 26 and Paul's words in these passages are sober reminders that they and we might not be overtaken by our enemy. We aren't in this battlefield by ourselves, my friends. We are are an army, the body of Christ, the church. And the surest road to victory for our enemy is to isolate one of us from the rest of us. We need to stand together and march together in the gospel. We need to pray for each other individually but we need to pray together as the body for the body. That's how it's possible to pray at all times. All of us praying for one another at different times about different things. Now jumping back up to the first verse in this section, verse 10, we find another key to victory. Not just in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in, but in living the Christ life all together. It reads... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, our strength and our ability to fight the battle that Christ has called us to is found in him. By his spirit. Christ alone has the strength and the power and the might that we need. God's might and strength are ours as we rely and we depend on him to provide them to us. And as we step out in faith and do what God calls us to do. Brothers and sisters, we as the church are indwelled by the spirit of a mighty God with infinite reserves of strength and power And might. And it is not we who do everything and God does nothing. And it is not we who do nothing while God does everything. But it is through spending time with Him and meditating on Him and His Word, through trusting Him to do what He said He would do and then doing it, that His power is made manifest in us. So we show up, we put on, we stand firm, we fasten, we take up. We pray, we keep alert, and we care for one another. That is our part. But the supplies given for battle and the strength to fight that good fight belongs to God. That's his part. But there's something else that belongs to him the results of the battle. See, the outcome of this fight has already been determined and Jesus has won. Satan and principalities and powers will have an end. And one day, when God's purposes are fulfilled, our enemy will no longer be able to work against our God or we his people. But until that day comes, as we engage in this spiritual battle, we simply apply what Jesus has already done. So we put on the full armor of God, we stay alert, and we pray. Because the cross of Christ and his resurrection assure us that victory is already ours. Listen again to Ephesians 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Disciples Church, we are in a battle, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it is not armor that we will wear, but robes of glory because of who Jesus is, what he has done for us and in us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we bless you that the issue of the battle between yourself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and we contend with a vanquished foe who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When we feel the serpent at our heels, may we remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. Our souls with inward joy extol the mighty conqueror. Heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict. If we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, If our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our hearts, if our soul sinks under pressure of the fight. O God, whose every promise is a balm, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warriors and refresh us that we may rise again to wage the strife and never tire until our enemy is trodden down. Give us such fellowship with you that we may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, and the world with the light that comes not from a creature and which a creature cannot mar. Give us a drink of the eternal fountain that lies in your immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall our hands never weaken, our feet never stumble. Our swords never rest. Our shields never rust. Our helmets never shatter. Our breastplates never fall. As our strength rests in the power of your might. In Christ's name, amen.